Welcome to another episode of the Bayer Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Rabbit. On the podcast today, we've got the Sista Scholars. Uh, and we'll get more into who those folks are in a second. Uh, before we get started, I just want to acknowledge that I'm producing this podcast on the territories of the Klaaman, Klehus, Homoko, and Comox First Nations. We were one nation before we settlers came in and separated them into reserves. So today we've got uh, Dr. Eva Gibson, Dr. Mariana Sandifer, and Dr. Sarah Brantridge. Welcome to the podcast, folks. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Awesome. Super stoked to just get in, learn, learn more about kind of school counseling. I've had a few conversations with school psychologists, a lot of conversations with behavior analysts in, in school settings, kind of uh, PBIS, uh, you know, uh, implementers and that sort of thing. But uh, uh, I've only had one conversation with a with a counselor educator. We didn't really get into counseling so much. I think this was sort of, um, uh, and, and I hope I'm, I'm not saying this wrong, but I think this was sort of a not a side gig for for this that last guest, but um, um, she seems to do a whole lot of other things uh, around um, uh, trauma uh, in uh, in uh, Indigenous kids. She runs the uh, National Native Trauma Center in the U.S. Uh, Dr. Megan uh, Rides at the Door. I don't know if you know that name, but uh, uh, she was super cool. So she was my first sort of, you know visit into counseling but we didn't talk too much about counseling so i'm looking forward to learning a bit about just sort of you know what this field's all about and uh and then kind of getting into some of the specific stuff you folks do uh, before we do all that i always like to kind of just get the origin story about kind of how folks got in the field and usually that takes up most of the interview uh, <laughs> uh and uh and can lead and, and can you know lead to some some cool conversations so maybe we could start just kind of clockwise on my screen with eva and just tell us uh kind of who you are kind of Kind of how you how you got into counseling and how you got into the work you're doing now. Well, um, I always knew that I wanted to work with children um, in some aspect of the the counseling realm. I didn't know exactly what that would look like. I kind of played around with school psychology, with child psychology, um, and um, and being a psychiatrist. Um, and then I landed on school counseling specifically, because um, really during my undergrad experience, I had a um, counselor educator um, kind of reach out to me and, and talk me into the profession. Um, and so I thought I would give it a shot. Um, and I did. And I worked as a school counselor for 11 years. Um, I spent some time at the elementary setting, and then I transitioned to the middle school setting um, and did most of my time in the school at the middle school setting. And then um, during my time at the middle school setting, I always knew that I, I had a, a interest in um, training counselors as well, um, because I felt like that would also leave a bigger impact on the field, um, because not only would I be touching the lives of students, but I'll be touching the lives of um, people who will be working with the students. So I started doing some adjunct work when I was a school counselor and then transitioned to um, higher ed full time. Um, so I've been in higher ed for um, seven years now as a counselor educator um, training, um, both clinical mental health counselors and school counselors as well. Hey, wow. All right, uh, Mariama. Yeah, so I come from a family of educators. Um, just just, just kind of was born into it. Um, but my undergraduate degree is in psychology as well. I think I kind of initially wanted to resist the urge to follow in anyone's footsteps, um, but I, it kind of brought me back to it. I'm originally from New Orleans, Louisiana, and at the time, once I you know, graduated from college, there's 
I mean, I guess it's the same now, a huge teacher shortage. Um, and so when you're looking for a job, looking for some get, you know, uh, promising employment, it kind of took me toward teaching. So I started mm -hmm. out as a teacher, not certified, just kind of um, answering that call. Um, and then ultimately wanted to merge my, my background of psychology as well as teaching, which led me to school counseling. And mm -hmm. um, I've also been a school, I worked as a school counselor for quite a bit of time, maybe about 14 years. I've worked at the elementary, middle, as well as the high school level. Um, and then, you know, I'm also a licensed professional counselor. So I'm school counseling, but I'm also a trained clinical counselor as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, bulk, the bulk of my work has always been in the schools. Sarah? Just if I mean, I don't think I've ever asked them that question. So I learned something. Okay. <laughs> so my track um, is a little bit different. So I was uh, what a lot of people would have called like an at-risk um, teenager. So mm. when we think about at-risk youth, I fell into that category. So college was not even in my trajectory, right? I was capable, but it just was not something I was interested in. And that shifted for me when I was a junior in high school. Um, and it was a sociology class, a legal issues class, and a psychology intro to psychology class that really gained my interest um, in going to college and started sparking some ideas about what that could look like for terms of certain other youth who had experienced things that I had once experienced. Um, so I did go to Virginia State University for my uh, psychology undergrad degree um, and immediately went into a master's program for counseling. And I started off actually on the clinical mental health track for that program and switched over to school counseling. Uh, when I thought about school counseling, I recognized that we have the ability to touch every student who is in that building. Um, and so we can be very preventative in our work. And the clinical mental health profession, we tend to get folks who are already kind of in trouble, right? They're mm -hmm. already yeah. um, you know, young folks who already are struggling pretty deeply. Um, and so that is where my transition into school counseling came from. Um, and so I was a school counselor for about seven years. I did do some mental health uh, work before that. Um, and I actually just finished my hours to also be fully licensed as an LPC. So exciting times. Um, and I'm a counselor educator uh, five years. Wow. Okay. Oh, that's awesome. Um, what is... What's what's the what's sort of the the so a couple of years said you you do the the LPC stuff and I think some supervision as well. Is it the same training? Like like how does one become a, a school counselor? Maybe first of all, and then and then how is it that you're also LPCs as well? And I don't know a lot about sort of the U.S. sort of system. I'm in Canada. The 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 job titles are all different. Um, and so um, just curious kind of how, how you get to be what you are. I guess I'll take this question. Hmm. <laughs> um, so um, the graduate program and, you know, we, we are all graduates of K-CREP accredited programs, which is sort of the gold standard for, for counseling. Mm -hmm. um, and so general, general education requirements is a 60 credit hour program. So all counselors tend to go through that path. Um, to become a school counselor, you might take 
you know, maybe three or four specific courses in addition to the general courses that all counselors tend to take. Mm. Um, and so when you're in that program, you can choose to do school, you can do clinical mental health, you can do re rehabilitation, like you can do a lot of different uh, okay. special, special um, sort of uh, focused programs. Um, but those students that tend to want to go to school counseling route, they take those special courses, which leads to a school counseling practicum, a school counseling internship. School counselors can also become licensed professional counselors as well, because mm. that experience um, is post-degree. You know, you have mm. to go through maybe three years of a supervised experience. You have to pass the national counseling examination. So there are extensive steps that you have to take beyond the degree, mm -hmm. um, whereas for school counseling, you graduate with your, um, you know, your courses and your credentials for school counseling. And now there are you know, credentialing exams you have to take depending on the state that mm, you kind of right. dictate what that test might be. It may be the school counseling praxis. It may be some other comprehensive exam depending on the state. But that exam is dictated by the state board of education usually. And that will um, sort of credential the, the counselor to be a school counselor or work in a school setting. So, mm -hmm. you know. There's course, a bit. Yeah, that does it. There, it just you know, there's a mix. There's different things that you can mm. do to sort of um, choose both or one or the other. Right. So it's kind of like a lot of fields where you kind of have sort of a, a general sort of broad view, and then you can kind of specialize. And and uh, uh, but it sounds like you don't need you don't always need the license to be a school counselor, but you do to be the the professional. Is it a professional counselor? Is that what the P stands for? Yes. Yeah, so you need the license to practice as a professional counselor, but you also need a certification, which in some states is also referred to as a license. You mm. can be a licensed school counselor okay. or a certified school counselor. So there's still those post-degree oh, credentials wow. that sort of qualifies you to work in either profession. Okay. And then I've also heard of folks that are and maybe it's maybe I'm thinking of marriage, but is there like a mental health kind of counselor as well that's sort of different or? Do any of y'all want to? I can answer. Okay. So sure. the LPC counselor is the licensed professional counselor. They are typically what people think of as clinical mental health counselors. Okay. Um, and when you mention marriage, um, there are marriage family um, uh, or marriage couples and family tracks as well. And that's a separate. Um, actual credential to be MFT is the kind of the short, the short version of that. And, and would MFT. folks take like the same general counseling you folks have taken and then go into the marriage stuff after? Yes, they absolutely do. And okay. then they take, they take the core K prep courses that all counselors take. They take specialized courses within the program that focus on marriage, families, and couples. Right. And then they do uh, uh, field experiences, supervised experiences under that umbrella as well. Um, but they also have a separate license, so they can be LPCs, but they can also be licensed as an MFT. So oh it'll gosh. say L LMFT is what their license would say. Sounds sounds like sounds like a lot of money to 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 kind of get through <laughs> all this. Uh, you know, yes. are, are there are there you know, you're, I know there's some work where we might get into it. There's some uh, that uh, and and forgive me. I, I was looking at some studies that had three of you, had two of you, and so forgive me if I'm if I'm not including the right people in them. But I know there was some work um, um, you were doing around uh, retention of 
uh, uh, black males in the field. Um, and um, I've had a few conversations with kind of black professionals in sort of all a lot of these different kind of, I don't know, for lack of a better term, these allied health fields. And, and you know, generally speaking, you know, recruitment and retention, retention are for sure difficult. Um, but also something that I've been learning a lot sort of in my kind of in my own sort of journey is uh, a lot about sort of this kind of idea of, of sort of first generation um, folks. So a lot of, you know, uh, families from, you know, you know, sort of, sort of marginalized backgrounds uh, for generations. They didn't have folks that went to school. So it's going to be a little different for you, Mariano, with all the educators in your family. Uh, maybe maybe one of them was was the first. Um, and so I know there's a lot of barriers to. Uh, I know one. I know. I know. Finance, financial barriers can be a big, a big, a big issue. There are, are there. And this is sort of a side thing that I probably would have asked a lot later. But are, are there kind of, is there help for folks? Because it seems like there's that we really, you really need more. We really need more. You know, black professionals in in kind of these fields. You know, there's you know a ton of a ton of research and, and conversation around. You know. You know, black kids doing better with sort of you know black professionals working with them and so on, or, or anyone having just folks that look like them working with them. Um, but you know, there's that barrier of funding, and it just sounds like there's a lot of levels. And the reason I'm asking is because in our field, you know, it's it, in behavior analysis. You know, um, I think the problem's even even more. There's even more. There's more issues. Um, I, uh, counseling, from what I've seen, is is just it's just way ahead. You guys are just way ahead of us, and on on a, on a lot of levels when it comes to this kind of work, in terms of you know everything from your ethics codes and 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 and, and position statements and so on and so forth. Um, so yeah, is, is is are there are there supports for folks that uh, you know that may 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 have kind of financial barriers to kind of getting through all this stuff, but beyond being top of your class and getting the best scholarship. You know, it's funny that you mentioned this because I manage the social media for our counseling program. Mm. And just yesterday, mm. um, I posted a fellowship opportunity um, for students to apply for so they can have some. Everyone wants to have control of their life, to make their own choices, decisions, and set goals that are meaningful and important to them. And students who are neurodivergent are no exception. Self-determined research indicates a host of positive quality of life outcomes for people who are neurodivergent, including better employment and independent living outcomes. Whether your students want to attend college or obtain employment after high school, they will need to acquire the skills necessary to pursue career life directions that are personally meaningful and are of their own volition. The self-determination course offered by CBI is an ideal tool for teachers to help students develop the essential competencies for self-determined behavior. The course consists of five modules with comprehensive lesson plans that are, include embedded resources, easily adapted for your diverse learners. Using the built-in self-reflection and assessment exercises, teachers can assess students' growth towards their self-determination and self-advocacy behaviors. If you're interested in learning more, check out the CBI Consultants webpage at www.cbiconsultants.com. If you're a behavior analyst and would like to collect continuing education credits for this episode, you can enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is school. 
additional funds to help hmm. support them um, during their process. And, and I will say what, what I posted yesterday was specifically because we are a K-CREP program. There are some, some additional resources out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and specifically, there are some additional resources for um, individuals from marginalized groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that all of us are really intentional and, um, and we, we, a lot of our work focuses around um, culture and representation. Um, now, uh, Mariama and I, we work in the same program. Um, mm. So we are also being very, um, we started to be very intentional about our recruitment process and how we're bringing um, future counselors into the field and, and trying to get more representation. Mm. Um, last year, I actually had a, a grant um, that I was able to gain and that went toward a scholarship to recruit more um uh, counselors of color um, mm. or potential counselors of color into the program because representation um, is important. Um, and so we try to, number one, um, let students know about resources that are out there and also recruit more um, potential counselors of color into the into the field. Oh, that's awesome. And I, I can just kind of follow up with that, mm. um, that same opportunity that um, Dr. Gibson just mentioned. I actually serve as a mentor for one of the organizations. So I, we have a number of professional organizations, whether it's our, our National School Counseling Organization, the Counseling Association, and then the National Board for Certified Counselors, another, another one. It's quite mm. a few. Um, but with that particular organization, I serve as a mentor for master's level students across the country um, and doctoral level, just you know, like you said, those students from marginalized backgrounds that maybe want to connect with a professional that looks like them or maybe yeah. have research interests to help them not only, um, I guess, be successful as, as students, but to also help them transition into that professional role. So mm. it provides funding. Again, it provides mentorship and just other, you know, other um, supportive resources as well. Yeah, yeah, right on, right on. One thing that I would like to add, and I, mm. I am a first-generation college student, and so okay. one of the things I'm really cognizant of is social capital and just not knowing, right? And so um, one thing I learned about once I was in my doctoral program uh, was graduate assistantships. And so that's another opportunity, depending on the university. Not all universities offer them. They can be limited, um, but maybe for folks who are listening who are have an interest, um, see if uh, graduate assistantships are available. This will cover cost of tuition and also provide a stipend. Um, mm. It is not a life-changing stipend, but it is something <laughs> to kind of help you help you get through. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's just a little bit. It's huge, right? Yeah, and yeah. I was going to say, and since you kind of opened it up with like, you mentioned, I guess I noticed that it's kind of can be kind of costly for us to maintain all of these credentials. Yeah. Even post degree, there are a lot of like jobs and um you know places that will provide free supervision mm. or even you know provide stipends toward licensure and certification. So there are you know places and employers that recognize this financial burden that it can be right. sort of an ongoing thing and offer that as a benefit. Yeah, yeah. And and are there Something else I've been hearing a lot about um, uh, and, and across these fields is is sort of the promotion of more of these programs at the at, at the at the HBCUs level kind of thing. And so, like for example, behavior analysis, there are currently none. Um, and I know 
there's I, well, I shouldn't say that. I, I believe they're they're they're. In the, I think there might be one starting actually this fall at uh, at uh, at FAMU. Um, but there, I know there are some organizations that are pushing to kind of do get get this going in sort of other areas because, like, I think across field it seems to be around sort of four percent of the field is black compared to sort of the you know the national numbers, which is more like fifteen or twenty in the population. Um, so you know, uh, very low. Are, are there are there? Um, and and again, forgive me if if if, if the universities you work at are these because I, I don't know which ones are which. Um, there are so many American universities that my brain just gets mushed. Uh, but um, uh, are, are there counseling programs at HBCUs? Mm -hmm. Actually, I know both Mariama and I, when we started our counselor education career, we both started at HBCUs. Mm. Um, so I worked at an HBCU for two years okay. um, and then transitioned to mm -hmm. the university that I'm currently at. And I actually really enjoyed it. It's just mm. that um, I was commuting there, so I did not enjoy that traffic. Right. <laughs> and and this, I worked at an HBCU and I entered my career and I absolutely loved it. I, you know, mm. I kind of I always say my ultimate goal is to eventually go back because, you know, it was just such a, you know, positive experience for me. Mm -hmm. But um, at the time, the program was working towards becoming accredited. And as a new professor, it kind of puts you in a, a difficult situation. So that led me to another university. But overall, yes, there are a number of HBCUs that offer these programs and do exceptionally well and pump out really high quality um, professionals. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and just a quick question about HBCUs in general. I didn't really I need to learn a little more about about these, but I mean, there's there's sort of some of the obvious pieces around, you know, kind of who's attending and, and who's working there, and and you know, a lot of a lot of really cool kind of you know, you know, culturally relevant program programs and so on and so forth. But are HBCUs also um, are are there more supports, I guess, for Black students, like as far as financial, again, as far as getting into the school, and 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 and, and or not just, I guess, not just financial, but also just in general around 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 keeping students and getting students. I don't know if the question is right there, but the, does being at HBCU make it easier for you know sort of Black folks to get into the field, or or is is it just more the experience of being at HBCU that's that's awesome? Good question. I had like a reaction because I went, I did, my undergrad was at a, um, a HBCU mm. and I would not say mm. that it made it easier. It mm. wasn't like my curriculum, my experience, right? I still had to do the grind work, but mm. the amount of support that people who are in your corner, who are voting for you, who are uh, wanting you to succeed, the energy right mm. on campus when um, the people around you um, are also all striving as people yeah. of color, uh, or I should say majority of people of color, because I want to keep in mind that HBCUs do have diversity, um, whether it's international students, whether it's students who do not identify as Black, and the right. same with professors. Um, and so you're still getting um, this wonderful, diverse experience. People from different states even bring different culture. Um, but there's some level of like camaraderie. There's some level of natural support. Mm that just um, is motivating. Yeah. And I think our professors are also very invested in us specifically um, as people of color because they know that we have the potential that they also had to get to where they are. And so they're encouraging um, in that way. Um, and I have 
also attended predominantly white institutions mm -hmm. um, and could very easily kind of fall through the cracks and be mm -hmm. unseen, be unheard. Gotcha. So for me, that's the difference. Um, when you think about finances, I think many HBCUs are actually at a deficit financially mm -hmm. because they are not getting the support um, that some of the larger institutions right. are getting to offer scholarships and right. um, and things of that nature. Yeah, so. yeah. And that's what I meant by easier. I wasn't sort of implying the coursework would be easier, uh, but more that just would it be. But I think it, I think the answer is yes, because. Uh, you know, having all those supports. You know, I mean, I, my very first podcast interview, the very that I did was with a, a black behavior analyst um, um, in, in in British Columbia, where I live, and and she just sort of shared a perspective that I've heard many times since um, about sort of being the only one, um, um, but the only one in her university. Um, you know, so she, so she was the only black student that she, she could see in the hallways in the classrooms, and she was in you know intro to site classes of 500 students and she's the only black student and, and, and kind of, kind of sharing those experiences and, 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 and how much of a struggle it was, you know, to, to get through that program because she just felt so alone. And so I think what I'm hearing you say, Sarah, is, is there's just, there's just so much more support for folks. So there is no, there is no feeling alone and there is no sort of feeling unheard or unseen and that sort of thing is, I think is what you're saying. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I think, I think too, like um, it is, it, it's you know, you do have more of that, but then, like Sarah said, you have less of the financial resources yeah. because the alumni base doesn't, um, they don't have the means to give back as mm. at a PWI. Right. So, in terms of those alumni funds, those look differently. And even in terms of like here in, um, I'm in Tennessee, and we have a few land-based um, universities, mm. and one of them is a um, HBCU. Well, now it's it, it, it's at the federal level where this particular HBCU was not getting the same amount of funding that the PWIs was wow. um, and over a series of decades, actually. So they should have had this federal money because they're land-based institution and the other ones were getting it, but they were not. And now they're they're asking for that money and they're still getting um, pushback. Wow. Um, um, from from the state from it. So definitely you have more support, but you, you do have less of those financial resources. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and this reminds me of, and again, an area that I'm, I'm, I'm just really learning about now around reparations um, uh, for Black folks in, 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 in America. Um, this this clearly falls on in so many areas. It's because it sounds like this whole you know I don't know how universities are funded in the states. I don't know how they're funded in Canada, to be honest. But um, but it, it sounds like it, I, I had suspected that you know it, that these white institutions were probably you know sitting pretty for a lot more a, a lot more decades than 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 the HBCUs and and I'm guessing they probably still haven't really they'll, they'll probably never catch up. Um, uh, you know, unless, you know, unless some, some big, big, big changes happen or, or some sort of grassroots effort or whatever, but even now is, is, is the funding still quite different? Like even in present day, not, not thinking about sort of the retroactive stuff. Um, it, it is, it yeah. is. So it's, it's an ongoing issue. Right. Wow. Okay. Um, a bit of a tangent there, but there's just, just it's all new to me. 
I wonder if I could just talk a little, I want to get into kind of how the sister scholars got together and how you met and all the work you're doing, but I want to know a little bit more about just what a school counselor is. Um, I know when I, when I grew up going to school, um, um, I had, um, and I've shared this a few times, uh, I now know that I, I spent my entire K to 12 experience with undiagnosed ADHD. Um, and, uh, and I had a lot of problems in school. I had no idea why. Um, it all makes sense now. <laughs> the diagnosis at 45, not much good for my childhood, but at least I don't feel like such a, so, like, like I was such a strange kid anymore. I was a strange kid, but this is why. Anyway, so, um, but there wasn't any supports is my point. I remember going to a speech language pathologist when I was six because I had a lisp. But beyond that, you know, and maybe I, I remember having this the pencil with a little little uh, triangle thing on it so I could hold it properly, and that didn't help. And uh, still messy today. But um, um, I, I didn't. There was I didn't really notice any supports um, um, in, in the school setting. But there was this. There was this. There's this. There was this guidance counselor office. I remember seeing that person in the door. Um, and uh but i certainly never never went in that room and uh or maybe i did and i just don't remember and this is that was adhd um and whatnot so uh i i don't i i, I i've heard of a guidance counselor um I, i've had a little bit of experience working in a high school and i saw that there was sort of one counselor that was kind of helping folks kind of pick their courses and that sort of thing or, or maybe find a summer job um but i don't really know what what a school counselor is and what they do relative to sort of say, you know, I'm learning more about what a school psychologist do, but that still seems to vary greatly depending on the school and the role and so on and so forth. So where does the school counselor kind of fit into the whole game here? Well, um, you had mentioned a guidance counselor before, and originally mm. when the field first started, that's what we were. We were mm. guidance counselors, mm. and the role was to help students um, with their post-secondary plans. So. Right. Um, you know, getting them prepared for their career. Um, and then it started looking at, you know, college, getting them prepared for college. And so you had a lot of work with them, like at the high school level um, for that, you know, next step when they graduated. Um, and that was kind of just what they focused on. However, um, over the course of the years, the role has really changed. Mm. And so now, um, in addition to, you know, that career focus, um, school counselors also um, are focused on their students' um, career, academic, and social-emotional needs. Um, really looking at the whole child um, versus just one aspect of this individual, but looking at their holistic needs mm. and trying to really be preventative and to touch all of the students, as Sarah had mentioned before. So it's not just you know a, a couple of students or a few students that you're seeing at the end of the year. It should be that all of the students you are you are meeting because you want to make sure that you are there for them for any responsive needs that they met if they are in crisis or if they're dealing with some um, difficulties. Mm. Um, but also teaching them um, just soft skills, um, getting them prepared for um, success in the future and beyond, and that really starts now at the elementary level. Mm. So at the elementary level, where uh, school counselors are working on those those three areas, academic, um, uh, social, emotional, and even career, because, you know, we want to start introducing them to different careers at the elementary level. Um, and then, you know, having that same focus at the middle school level. Now, the services might look a little bit different because, of course, those students have different developmental needs. So the counselor's role might might look a little bit differently. However, we're we'll still focused on those needs for all of our students um, and really looking at a tiered approach 
as to, you know, what services are we providing to all of our students, what students need maybe some more specialized services, maybe we're doing some group counseling with them, mm. maybe we're doing some individual counseling, and also what are some students maybe we're referring out because maybe they need some long-term support, which we cannot offer in the school setting, of course, because, you know, they're ultimately they're there, you know, for education. And we have a large caseload, um, but we still want to make sure that there's that their needs are being met. Um, and at the high school, again, that focus is still the same, but it looks a little bit um, looks a little different. Mm-hmm. And Mariama, it looks like you have something that you want to add as well. Oh, I just guess I think the most important thing to add or note is that guidance counselor is outdated terminology. Um, we don't use that anymore because. As you mentioned, it was sort of reactive, you know, Mm. sort of like just dealing with transcripts or sitting, you go to the office, they help you, you know, with whatever you need at that time. You you didn't, most students didn't even really know who the guidance counselor um, was Mm. because of that role. But now school counselors are very um, visible. Um, we are proactive, we are involved, you know, in a leadership capacity, serving on the various decision-making um, bodies within the school and the district, um, and sort of at the forefront of a lot of the, the educational and overall, like uh, Dr. Gibson said, just the, the overall holistic, you know, wellness of students, we, we try to be at the forefront of that. And so school counselors reflect that, that mission or that purpose, whereas again, guidance counselors are out dated and more reactive. Okay. Four points logistically, I guess. Um, guidance counselors typically did not have to have a master's degree in counseling. Mm. Uh, oftentimes they were former teachers who came into that role. Um, and then second is that um, school counselors are also using evidence-based practices. So they are leaning into the research to um, help determine the types of interventions that they are engaging with with students. Well, that makes sense. And so I asked this a bit when, when I talked to Dr. Rise at the door, but again, we were focused more on trauma and whatnot. What's, how, how, how does your role differ from a school psychologist? I know school psychologists, one thing they do is a lot of these assessments, but I also know that school psychologists that I've interviewed, um, a lot of them are saying, we do more than assessments. Um, and we should be doing more than assessments. And so, and, and, and we, and, and so when I've talked to them, they've sort of described what sounds like some things you, you you folks are saying, and so what's the difference, and 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 then and also maybe how do you how do you work together? And I think that kind of will lead into some of the conversations around the shared leadership and stuff as well. So um, I think first it's important to say it depends on the resources of the district. We can mm-hmm. start there okay. um, because. Some districts may employ more school counselors, some may employ social workers, some may employ, you know, you know, so it really just mm. depends on what those resources look like, because okay. the roles can overlap in, in, in a lot of the instances. But um, the standard is that school counselors are involved at that tier one level, uh, meaning that they are in the classrooms, they are kind of integrated all throughout the building, dealing with the day-to-day processes and procedures Mm. in the school, working with families 
at the very beginning of that educational journey. Mm. Um, psychologists tend to be more involved once we get to that tier two, tier three level, meaning that, mm. you know, you need more intensive support for students, whether that involves, again, assessing or evaluating um, specific concerns for students, then the school counselor and the school psychologist tend to work together at that point to figure out how to help a specific group or a specific population of students that has been um, identified through that overall comprehensive school counseling program. And that's typically the way that process looks. Somebody want to add on to that? Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And because it, it does seem like, you know, you're not going to be doing all these sort of comprehensive assessments on every single kid that comes into the school system uh and uh and and so you know having someone there from the very moment they enter the system to sort of start preventative practices from day one so maybe they don't need the services of a school of a school psychologist and so on and so forth and so the idea also that and, and that also makes sense because I, I know where I live is, is the school district is quite small um um we certainly don't have you know um all those resources i think there 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 is a school psychologist sort of one for the entire district kind of thing whereas it sounds like you know most schools would have a counselor ideally um and and that's what it does seem like and in fact i know the, the high school that i worked in again had i think they had three or four um school counselors working um and, and no psychologists and so yeah that, that makes a lot of sense because it, it it is easy to sort of get all this stuff mixed up um, um and uh Shortly, we'll we'll sort of talk about kind of some of the work you folks are doing because there's so many so many cooks in the kitchen at a school. Um, but let, let's talk about the sister scholars. Uh, how how did the, how did how did you folks form? How did you get together? And um, and 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 why are you doing this work? And then and and sort of related to that, I, something I noticed right away just when you kind of introduced yourselves and and each is, each of your stories. Um, I'm, you know, Eva kind of you know uh, sounds like early on in, into the educator sort of stance and, and the sort of the academics and stuff, Mariama, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of years on the ground, boots on the ground as a counselor. And, and, the, and then Sarah, just having, you know, the experience of maybe actually being a student that, that, that might've accessed a lot of these services and, and kind of having that perspective. Um, I could just see how the three together can, can, could put out some really cool things, but, but that's, that, that's, that's from my view. How, how do you folks all meet and come together? So Mariama and Eva um, actually met first. Um, I want to say that was maybe back in like 2017. Um, they met at a professional conference. Um, I'm going to venture to say that they were vibing with one another and um, <laughs> and the research interest and the conversations, they would, it clicked mm -hmm. um, and likely exchanged information and kept in contact. Um, and so some of the work when you reference um, some of us, uh, there's only two of us on some things and then the three of us on others. Um, some of the things that there were just two would have been even in Mariama before mm. um, I came in. Right. But they also were partnering with other uh, scholars as well with similar um, research interests. And then about like 2019, um, I met them at a conference. Um, we were in a session together. They actually sat behind me in the session. Um, and we started to talk and um, noticed that we had similar interests. We actually went out to dinner um, that night and 
exchanged information and it kind of just went from there. Um, and I know for me, it was, again, the vibes. I had genuine energy from them. Um, it felt that we would work together well. Um, the two of them were already working together well. Um, and we had a passion. Like we had a really similar passion for doing the work that, we, that we're currently doing and the trajectory of things that we like to do. Mm. Um, so that's the, I guess that's the short version of how we met. Anyone want to, <laughs> want to well, add? I, and I would just say too, it's, it was academic. We were all vibing, but also I think at the time, just all entering into our career as counselor educators, like, mm. for, like brand new. Um, and with that comes its own you know, sort of experience. That's the best way I can put it. And so it's important with any career that you find people that you can um, sort of connect with and offer support and, and provide that space for each other. Mm. And we were that. We needed that. Probably didn't know how much we needed it at the time, but it has definitely been, um, like I can't even find the words to express how beneficial it has been to make those connections early in this career, which mm. has sustained us as we move on each year um, in this in this higher educational um, environment. Mm. Mm. Really cool, really cool. And so, but now, Maria and Eva, you also work to get work at the same program. Did that happen after? It did. I um I finally pulled her alongside me um, <laughs> because, uh, like Sarah said, we met in 2017. We were both we were both at different universities, uh, mm. of course, in two different states. Um, and then we ended up leaving those current universities and went to different universities, um, but still kept in touch um, and uh, just was doing work together just over Zoom. Um, we were able to. Um, do publications together and even um, create some presentations as well. Um, and then uh, just this past year, we had an opening um, at our program. And I told her, I was like, Mariama, you should apply. And at first mm. she was like, no, I'm good. <laughs> um, and then uh, <laughs> and then we kept dropping hints because yeah. my other faculty who work in my program, um, of course, then they met Mariama too, because we all go to professional conferences. Mm. Um, and so then they started dropping hits to her too. So finally, um, I guess she got tired of us bothering her. So um, <laughs> so she applied and uh, and that was it. That was it. Right on, right on. And and you said you you, you met at, at a conference and I know there's there's a few different uh, conferences for, for, for school counselors and whatnot. I'm just curious, uh, just because I've had some some conversations with the school psychs and some psychologists and behavior analysts around this, around um, around conferences and the kind of that conference experience, um, and and those three fields have all now have sort of separate conferences that are that are that are kind of they're black black conferences so black focused conferences so the they're recently i think in just just last this just year this past june i went to the the black behavior analyst conference which was just the coolest thing i've ever been to in my entire life ideally i really this is the best conference i've ever been to ever um uh and i and and earlier in the summer i interviewed um um Tierra Bland, who's a school psychologist, and she's associated with the, the Black School Psych Summit that just kind of happened this year. And so they just had their first kind of big conference. And of course, then of course, there's the there, there there's uh, the Association of Black Psychologists that have been, you know, meeting for a lot of years. Is there something similar in school counseling? 
don't know that we have, we don't have a conference that I'm aware of, but mm. we do have a professional uh, school councils of color organization. Mm. Um, and so at each one of the conferences, um, we gather together um, and do whether it's collaborating on um, presentations intentionally, whether mm. it's um, an actual, this, I think this past year, I, I missed it, um, but they actually, there was like a gala um, event this past mm. year. Um, and so that has been intentional um, to create space um, for us, but um, not yet an isolated conference, but I'm sure that could be in the works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we, when we met, we met at our kind of our um, broad, yeah, our broad professional conferences. Right, right. And, and what is the sort of overarching association for you folks? Um, so is, for, is for the school counselors, it's uh, ASCA, American School Counseling Association, and for counselor educators, it's ACES, um, so the Association for Counselor Educators. And oh, okay. Counselor Education Association. Oh, I got, okay, gotcha, because I did see, I think in one of your biographies, uh, I, think, I think it was you, Sarah, um, around uh, being being uh, in, in something, CESIS? Yes, yeah, uh, so that's the regional. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So like yes, yes. Southeastern and Eva, and Eva sits on the board for ASCO. Right. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. Cool. All right. So you say you all have kind of similar interests. So what? What? What is kind of your all, all your kind of research focus? What? 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 Well, not maybe not individually, but I mean individually too. But like, what? What? What do the sister scholars work on? What? What? What are your? What are your? Your passions. Well, I think a big piece that brought us together is um, uh, looking at uh, marginalized groups, specifically specifically Black students. We are mm. all Black. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, we do have that lived experience. And, and because of that, we're able to, I, we were able to identify some, um, some needs that we saw within the school system um, regarding our marginalized youth and specifically our Black students um, based upon the data. Um, and just our observation, our our observations as school counselors. Um, so that's one of our main focuses. We've also um, started kind of branching out um, as we started doing more work together and more research um, into uh, leadership. Um, because you know, as we're you know taught as we're identifying needs, then that means that we have to advocate. Um, so we right. focus on advocacy. We focus on leadership because you have to show up as a leader um, to be able to do this work. Um, and then we also started really looking at collaboration as well, because it really takes a village um, to create some uh, systemic change. So I think, you know, those are probably some of our, our big focuses. Uh, Mariama, Sarah, did I leave out any? No, I think that's good. And I, I would just say with that leadership piece, too, though, um, it's really important for us to advocate and and educate school counselors to step into that leadership role, like like Eva was saying, because because of the work that we have to do, we have to be at the forefront. But not only that, you know, we all know that school principals are responsible for everything that goes on into the building. So we mm-hmm. really um, want to um, encourage that collaborative in relationship between school counselors and school principals because the change happens when everybody's on one accord and respecting what each brings to the table, respecting Mm. that knowledge that that discipline 
um, sort of provides them. And it's not something that's been easy uh, or um, I guess it's not a common like way to, to, to um, I guess, look at that relationship. Mm -hmm. So we really work to try to get that message out there. And also by collaborating with administrators, we want to, you know, start building that relationship from the the graduate level, why students are in training, so that when they become professionals, they already have this idea of what that relationship can can be and how impactful it can be for our students. And she mentioned admin, but you know some of the work that we that we are also cognizant of is um, school psychologists. Um, you know what that looks like. Um, school social workers. Um, what that looks like because you know there are just a lot of. Um, some overlapping um, uh, just work that we do. So how can we do that work um, together well so we can meet the needs of students? Sarah, you had something you wanted to add. Wanted to add that all of the um, kind of the nuanced piece perhaps to even our shared leadership model is a focus on doing this work specifically with uh, marginalized populations or in a way that intentionally serves marginalized populations. Um, and so we do a lot of talking um, and educating about multicultural counseling, cross-cultural counseling, um, anti-racist counseling um, as well. And that's a, a core focus, um, even when we talk about shared leadership. Um, Miami, you mentioned that, you know, collaboration is is big, but it's it's not all that common um, um, among among folks. I, I like I would not want to be you folks. <laughs> um, schools are scary places to me, uh, as as both as a student um, uh, and uh, and also as a professional. Um, um, I know, like as again as as sort of putting on my behavior analyst hat. Um, up until recently, you know, schools didn't even have us in in there. Uh, you know, it was, we were always external folks kind of coming in, and and that's you know really hard um, because you don't have relationships with anybody, and so you're really going to kind of start from the top and spend a lot of time kind of doing that work. We are starting to see more behavior analysts in school settings, um, but again, you know, I think we're still hearing kind of you know the same same sorts of issues and barriers. What 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 is sort of the climate of and, and obviously it's going to be different in every school and every district and so on and so forth. But just sort of in, in the kind of like what, what's sort of the climate maybe in sort of the education field um, around kind of collaboration and working together. Because I remember a, a message that uh, my grad school advisor said to me um, that 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 has kind of kind of sat with me forever and she told me she said Ben you know because I, I did a master's in special ed and she was saying our offices here on the special education floor are literally down the hall from the general education folks they don't want anything to do with us they don't talk to us and this is at the university level and in, in, in sort of in you know in, in the education level and I, was, and I was just I was just like blown away what, what do you mean they don't talk to you yeah no there's no collaboration within our university of any kind between special ed and general ed and I was just like floored at that concept that you know, that that even in, in within a university that there would be no you know knowing that y'all kind of got to work together but um but then at the same time 
it seems like, and I know this this is the case for behavior analysts, sort of across uh, a lot of behavior analysts. We don't do very well working with others in general. We often think sort of that our our angle is the best angle. We work in behavior; everything's behavior, so we can do everything. Um, you know, we we could we could be the president. Um, you know, we, we can do anything you know, because it's everything is behavior, and we don't need any anybody's help. Um, and that puts people off, and I get that. Um, but I just don't understand how even this day and age, there isn't some sort of, you know, unifying approach to sort of schooling. Uh, so what's that like for you folks? Well, I, I think, you know, the research shows that this siloed approach to education or working with students is just not, it's not best practice. It's not what's um, going to give you the the outcomes that we I would hope all educators want, mm -hmm. which is students feeling accepted and feeling as if they belong and able to experience you know long term success. Mm -hmm. So that siloed approach is just not what's going to give you that. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think for us, it's helping get the understanding out there, like reimagining education, the way that we approach it. And, the, and there are standard models that exist that have been proven to be very successful in schools. It just depends on if the leadership buys into that. So again, how do you um, sort of change this perspective and interrupt sort of these um, traditional views on how we work in schools. You know, mm. there's a lot of people that go into administration, become principals, and they want to implement this old, outdated, traditional view. I am the principal. Mm -hmm. Everybody else just sort of kind of, you know, delegate. I delegate what yeah. I need done. And that is something that many disciplines, whether school psychologists, counselors, teachers, everybody, even administration, I'm not going to say all of them are the same. You know, there are a lot of, you know, people, professionals who understand that the collaborative approach, the shared governance approach is what's probably going to be the the best for everybody. Mm. And they have adopted that approach and are starting, we're starting to see some changes. We're starting to see more schools function from that mindset and, um, is just a better place for the for the for the for everybody involved. Mm -hmm. And I would like to um, also talk that talk about that both from the school perspective and also from the university's perspective. Mm -hmm. I think um, from the school's perspective, I think that uh, you know, unfortunately, I think it does depend on the building and also the leadership at that school and how um, how people feel. What is the culture of that school? Mm -hmm. You know, do they feel like they're a team and they're collaborative or or not, or do they not feel safe? Um, or and also, I know that sometimes too, like it, it's like working in the schools is. It seems like it's tougher than it than it ever was before. Um, in terms of, there's just a lot that we have to consider now. There's a lot that's going on, and so I think sometimes people can just get overwhelmed, you know, yeah. with all of the responsibilities. Yeah. And so, like collaboration can be, um, you know. Because you have to be intentional about collaboration. Mm. Um, and some people are just kind of just surviving day to day, um, unfortunately. Um, but as far as at the university perspective, I think that, um, again, it has to be intentional because I know sometimes, you know, we can work in our own silos, too. Like, for example, like my program um, in my department, we have the Department of Psychological Sciences and Counseling. 
and we have our um, our faculty members who work in an undergraduate program, and they just teach undergraduate classes. And then we have um, our program, the Masters in Counseling, and then we have the we have an industrial organizational psychology master's program, and we also have a doctorate program. And mm-hmm. we all teach our other classes. Um, so sometimes, you know, it can be easy to forget that number one, there are other people just in our department <laughs> that we could collaborate with mm-hmm. outside our program, but you know, even outside of our department and across campus. Um, but I do think that those people would be very open to those ideas. I've been um intentional and in, um once a year, I would like to do this more. Um, but again, this takes planning. So, you know, I need to commit to do this. But um, but once a year, I have a collaborative class with the social workers. Um, mm. So we all, you know, get together, me and their instructor, we always plan a class together where the, the um, social workers in training are um, integrating with the counselors in training. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about what can collaboration look like when they get out into the school setting. Um, we are talking about, we really want to do some collaborative work with our administrators in training yeah. um, and kind of reaching across um, uh, the, the bridge um, with that. Um, that's still, we have some ideas in mind. Uh, we actually want to do some grant to really get some um, some trainings going with that. Um, so that's that's a work in progress. Um, but, you know, but it just does take, you know, some intentional planning um, to, you know, really think yeah. about the other people um, that, you know, that will we'll be working in the same building together. Yeah, because I mean, I, I would imagine the, the point about sort of the old school sort of principle runs the show, um, you know, and 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 that's probably, you know, in some part. Well, and maybe in large part due to their training as well and, and kind of, you know, the, what they're taught. And so, you know, uh, I think I read one of your papers, you know, just the, the importance of modeling. And, um, and uh, you know, I, I would I would think if I was going to school to become a principal, if I saw in my university that, you know, my we, we were taught to work together with, you know, the other folks in the building, um, you know, that that's going to carry over when, you know, hopefully when it, when I get into the school setting, whereas if I'm taught the other way, you know, I, I might not even know. So it wasn't intentional, but it seems like a good segue into kind of the shared leadership stuff. Um, and so what, can you tell me a bit about sort of this, uh, the, this culturally affirming shared leadership um, sort of framework, but maybe a little bit of background in terms of, you know, what shared leadership is, what it looks like, and, and kind of then how you kind of got to this framework. The second secret word is sister. You want to take it, Sarah? Sure. Um, well, I'll say that I guess starting off, how did we get to this framework? Mm-hmm. Um, it was from exactly this conversation that you all were just having um, about what we are seeing in the building and where the gaps are. So as former school counselors recognizing um, that there is not currently a model um, in place that reaches across um, the aisle to the various professionals that our main focus is to support students. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we wanted to kind of look at that and how could that be done, but again, from that culturally affirming lens. um, And so, we uh, looked at, you know, different literature that was already out there um, and also um, kind of the ideas that we had 
based on our own experiences as counselor educators and uh, started to work on um, this, this shared leadership model. Um, and so the model itself um, includes this idea of uh, critical like self-awareness. So um, all parties really taking the time to come to understand what their own biases are, uh, reflecting on their own positionality, um, how this might impact the school environment, how does it impact the decision-making processes in the school, um, also really being tapped into culturally responsive uh, teacher preparation um, and curriculum. So what are students learning? Um, are there diverse authors, so to speak, um, diversity in content? Um, are the uh, professional developments that are taking place also, also culturally relevant training mm. and resources being available as well? Um, are the environments inclusive of all students? Um, this can be anything from uh, visual representation of students, um, you know, down to, again, um, books in the library, which we now know, right, this week, but we wrote this uh, pre-book ban uh, conversation. <laughs> but, you know, we know that that's something that's happening, um, which is stripping representation um, in some ways in mm. schools as well. Um, and so how do all of these things kind of come together um, to shape even the energy, the environment, um, the socialization that's even happening in the school building before you even get into the nuts and bolts of things like uh, discipline policies mm. and academic policies and so forth. And I think it's important to note that we... Um, we, we created this model um, together, but also we had a uh, former administrator who is now a administrator educator. Um, and so he was really able to bring in that administrative piece. Um, and he also had, of course, an interest and in, in a culturally affirming approach too. So the model itself um, is collaborative in nature and it was built collaboratively. And so we really have a, uh, we, we um, created this, this framework. Um, we have a publication on it. We actually just presented on it at our national conference, our national mm -hmm. school counselor conference. So he came out um, and presented uh, with us school counseling folk. Um, and then, uh, like I said, we want to do some, some stuff in the future in terms of, you know, some potential training um, counselors and, um, and administrators together looking at some grant work. So we have our um, our eyes on a horizon and where we can continue to take this work. Yeah, you know, and I was, I was you kind of answered my next question, what would it be like, it would be awesome if you could write something like this, you know, across the across the profession. So, th so this James Thompson, he's the administrator. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. that's awesome. Okay, that, that, may, that makes it way cooler. Because I mean, I think that's I, I something I've been seeing a lot of, which I, I, I is, is papers, Kind of like not like this, where 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 someone where folks from one field in a space that you know works with a bunch of different fields are making recommendations, you know, for how it should all work. Um, but I, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm like, well, yeah, but only the counselors for this example would be reading this paper, or only the school psychologist would be reading that paper, or only the behavior analyst would be reading that paper, even though they're making recommendations for everybody else. Um, and so getting right in there and, and, and writing these papers collaboratively is, is, you know, what makes sense because it's a, it's a paper on collaborating. So yeah, that's cool. And so there's, the, there's a plan for more like this with more sort of, sort of cross-discipline kinds of conversations. 
Uh, absolutely. So one of the things I think Eva mentioned was the grant funding. So we are um, hoping to um, kind of implement this model into um, a few different schools um, and receive feedback, right? So we can have an evidence-based approach as we maybe refine or see how things work. Um, we are hoping to uh, essentially create um, maybe like a workbook um, type of um, platform as, as well as workshops to kind of um, help facilitate the process. Mm -hmm. um, and again, uh, James will be, um, you know, integral part um, in, in sharing information and helping us structure all of, all of that. Um, and we're also looking at things that we can do within our own universities um, to continue collaboration as well, similar to what Eve is doing with the uh, social work program, being able mm -hmm. to collaborate with higher ed programs, um, co-teach courses or have workshop days while people are in training um, so that we are maybe um, catching things before, right? They're actually already in the field mm -hmm. and thinking of training in a different way. Mm -hmm. So Any, anything I missed? How does how does sort of shared leadership work? Um, um, it, it, it's it's something that sounds cool, um, and uh, but again, you know, I, I think a lot of folks are used to sort of these traditional models of one person being in charge uh, of everything and kind of one person making that final decision, um, um, and so. How how does it work and and how does she how do like is is yeah I I don't I don't understand. <laughs> I mean I could just start off by saying we don't want to like minimize or not um, like make it a point to say we recognize that administrators are responsible for what happens in their buildings like mm. we understand that share leadership for us is understanding that every professional at that table brings a unique perspective. They bring, you know, training, expertise, and shared leadership is just that, respecting what people bring to the table, having a conversation, listening, sharing ideas, and coming to a consensus. Mm -hmm. Yes, the principal has to be the one to make that final decision, but the hope is that they have considered and heard and included all of the voices at the table. Mm -hmm. And then that decision is made, again, from a collaborative perspective, but then, you know, um, the the action is then implemented as a result of that and mm -hmm. that's sort of, and then of course there's some delegation that's going to have to happen as a result of that we understand that but again it's just having all of those voices heard respected valued and a part of that decision and i think um the uh basis on how this can be really effective is it's built on the, the foundation of, of a relationship like we have to have a, a collaborative and a positive and productive relationship um, between the entities for this to work well. And one of the things that um, I know that we probably all noticed is that, you know, if you don't have a relationship with your administrator, then <laughs> that is going to make or break your year. And then mm. I also, we also realize that there are some counselors who don't know how to establish a relationship with their administrator. I know when I first came into the profession as a brand new counselor, like I really didn't, I, I really didn't, nobody taught me that. And mm. so I just kind of went along with the flow. And so I didn't have a bad relationship with my um, administrator. However, 
I was not being utilized to to my full extent. I, I didn't do everything that I was trained to do. Um, I, I wasn't servicing students to where I could be servicing students um, because I didn't know how to maybe advocate for my role or share um, mm. share what are some some things that I could do with students. Um, because again, you know, some um, administrators, you know, they grew up on the guidance counselor role. So, you know, some of them may not even be aware of everything that a school counselor is trained to do and can do. Mm. Um, so, you know, we have to, one, develop a positive relationship with our administrators so we can have some good conversations, share we, how we can contribute to student success and student outcomes, but also to provide some accountability mm. um, as well, because when we're, when we're talking the same language in terms of student success and supporting students, um, and then, you know, administrators' ears begin to peak up, you know. Mm. Um, so we have to make sure that we are speaking their language um, and developing, I'm um, talking about accountability, talking about data, looking at gaps, talking about how we can help contribute to um, to uh, to decrease those gaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and that relationship piece, once they know that, you know, we're here and this is what we can do and that we will do this, um, then they'll trust you to continue to do what you're, you are trained to do. Mm-hmm. Now, and I will add to that, you know, something that you say, Eva, um, You know, you heard the saying, sometimes you can be your own worst enemy. And I will say that is a problem with school counseling, that a lot of times school counselors go into the professional, go into the building and not really stepping up to the plate. You know, administrators Mm. should not be responsible for teaching you your job or Mm. telling you what to do. And sometimes, unfortunately, they find themselves in that position where it's like, okay, you're not being proactive. So this is what I'm telling you, I need you to do. Mm. And so it is our responsibility as counselor educators to really build that leadership mindset. So those students go into those roles feeling confident, feeling, um, you know, aware, feeling, you know, ready to get into the building and contribute to that learning environment without mm. being told what to do. Mm. And is most of that, those skills kind of learned in in the program or is that where supervision is, it really comes in? Is that, is that where, where, do, where, where do students kind of learn sort of those pieces? Because I, I know that's something that those kinds of sorts of soft skills as they were are things that are that are missing I know from a lot of our programs um, um, yeah, it's interesting uh, uh, in, and again in behavior analysis um, it was only in 2020 was sort of 2020 or 2019 I think was the very first study that came out that referenced being compassionate uh, and uh, and building a relationship with with folks and and, uh, you know, in that therapeutic alliance, things that, you know, folks in your field have been doing, you know, since time immemorial. Um, and and so it's become a real, I think there's a push for grad programs to have more kind of coursework in these areas, but right now there isn't any. And so it's really up to the quality of, of, of the supervision. Is is that the same case for, for you folks? Well, I'll share that I did not learn that in my program, mm-hmm. which I wish I had. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now I'm very intentional, you know, with my students and teaching those skills um, mm. because it, it's I, I want you to get this now versus your three, four years in the field. Yeah. And, and it's just now coming to you or it never comes to you. 
um, because I, you know, we see that too. We see counselors who have been practicing for many years, but who have still not stepped up to that leadership and are not advocating for students, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so I, I would say that, you know, hopefully um, students are being taught that in programs now, but, um, you know, I can't say for sure that is the case. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, and also you asked about supervision. So for um, school counseling supervision, because school counselors, um, they are required to do a practicum in the in the field, and then they're required to do an internship. Hmm. Um, and then they, um, during their fieldwork experience, they have a site supervisor, um, but they also have a faculty um, supervisor as well. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I'll be transparent in saying that there are some of our site supervisors who um, may be really good at that. Um, we try to be really intentional with placements. Um, and there are other site supervisors who um, maybe not so much good at that, but they're good at other things. Um, but at least I know that like for our program, our students do um, placements at the elementary level, middle school and high school level. So they mm. actually have three different site supervisors. Oh, um, so hopefully, you know, maybe, you know, what, in there. You know exactly. <laughs> <laughs> are, are the site supervisors also counselors? Yes. Okay. So it really just depends where they, where they learned as well, I suppose. Yeah. And and I just want to add to, we mentioned, we've been saying throughout this segment about accreditation, you know, being Mm. a accredited program. So there's KCREP accreditation and there's also CAPE accreditation. So we do function from professional standards, be it as practitioners, or as counselor educators, we have standards that sort of say, this is the expectation. Now, it doesn't dictate how we do it, but it just says students should be able to do this or students should be able to do that. Mm. Um, And you're required to to make sure that they can do these things. And the standards do say that students should be, you know, leaders, they should be, Mm. you know, implementing these comprehensive programs, they should be collaborative. So the standards do sort of outline that. And so our hope is that, and we do recognize that all programs are not accredited and it just Mm. depends on the state, but the majority of programs are KCREP or or, and what am I trying to say? Either or, either they are both or there are one or the other, KCREP or Kate and either both of those um, sort of um, guidelines are similar in that they sort of outline these expectations for students. Can you just tell me what those those abbreviations are? What those stand for? So y'all can look up CAPE. I know CAPE. <laughs> it's the Council for Accreditation for Counseling and Related Educational Programs. Uh, okay, gotcha. And CAPE is <laughs> the Council for the Accreditation of Educator Preparation. Mm. And so folks, do they need both or is it sort of one or the other or how does that work? You can have both. Mm. Um, CAPE is more for educator prep. So that is in alignment with school counseling predominantly. And KCREP is for all counseling. Ah, Um, That sets the standard across the general, the broad counseling programs. And and KCREP is like the the gold the gold star in terms of counseling. So if you come from a KCREP program, then people believe that you are well equipped to go into the field. And and could a program have neither? Yes. Mm. It depends on the state though. Some states, in order for you to get your license, 
require you to graduate from a KCREP accredited program. I see. Some states may not have that requirement. You can graduate and maybe you can get into some sort of work, but you may not be able to get your license. You might be able to mm. work as a master's level, you know, professional in some kind of facility, but you may not be able to get your license. So the licensing board really sort of sets that standard I see. for what they want you to come in with. Mm. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. And I think another, I'm sorry, but another oh, yeah, point is, you know, we talk about, you know, reciprocity or being able to move throughout the states. Um, yeah. And that is the other thing. KCREP sort of creates this. We know everybody, no matter what program you came from, you receive this sort of training, which makes it easier to get a license in one state that might be able to be transitioned over to another. And I know we have this interstate compact thing that I'm not well versed in, but the spirit of it is that you can practice in another state once you get this license, because we know your training is mm. of a certain quality. And so that's what a profession is going to try to have this standard across the United States where counselors can, you know, provide services because as we've been talking about, there's a shortage and it should be that, um, with the, the quickest way to kind of successfully meet that need is to um, practitioners to be able to provide services no matter where they are in the United States. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So the other piece of this uh, frame framework is the culturally affirming part. And once again, um, I don't know why you fields do this to me, but you keep creating new terms with the word cultural in it. Um, there are so many now. <laughs> I know cultural competence is pretty much out the door now um, uh, because no one can gain competence in anything. It's always a lifelong journey. I think cultural humility is kind of across everything, but cultural humility isn't actually, you know, something you see in a program it's just how you're behaving and, and recognizing your biases and so on and so forth and knowing that you've got to keep learning um uh then i've seen uh, you know certainly in, in terms of some some of the conversations i've had with indigenous folks there's a lot of talk about cultural safety and that makes a lot of sense and i think similarly in, in certain certainly for black folks as well you know the safety is, is definitely you know top of mind and, and and that that's a thing but again you know, that's, that seems to be more of a sort of a, a general kind of thing. And then when it comes to kind of, you know, the actual, you know, stuff you're doing, um, uh, I've seen culturally responsive seems to be a common one these days in, in, in my field. Um, and, and I see that you folks have decided to go with um, culturally affirming, which, I mean, it's a, it's a great term, but, but, but why, why? So I don't want to take this one. Let me be clear. One of my colleagues can take that one, but I just want to say you just don't know how often we have this discussion. Like, <laughs> talk about what word we want to use. So it's intentional, but y'all can yeah. have that. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'll take this one. Um so you're absolutely right. And so we have, and you'll see across our work, we've used culturally responsive, we've used culturally sustaining. Um, and here we another use culturally, one? yes, another <laughs> one. <laughs> and so here we use culturally affirming. Mm. Um, and when we think about affirming, right, it's this, it's this concept of embracing, right? Yeah. It's really centering culture. It is someone walking away feeling seen, heard, um, embraced. It is also really intentional work, mm. right? It's proactive. And so when we're thinking about setting up schools, right, as school counselors and, and leadership folks, if we're thinking about setting up our classroom spaces to be culturally affirming, 
we are doing this with diverse cultures at the forefront, not as an afterthought mm. in a way that they are going to feel intentionally integrated, thought about, um, and, and had space made for them in a way that they walk away feeling affirmed, right? Mm. Which is, mm. again, to feel seen, heard, um, understood. Um, and so that's where the culturally affirming comes from. The culturally responsive, I think we struggle, or maybe I'll speak just for me, I struggle with culturally responsive because of that responsive. Like it's on the back end, it feels Reactive, like, like, yeah, oh, yeah. oops, this person came in, what do I do to make them feel okay? Um, or to make things better. And so I struggle personally with with culturally responsive. Mm. Yeah, I really like that that point, because I think that's something that we're seeing a lot in in behavior analysis is, um, you know, it is this cultural responsiveness. And up until today, it, it's kind of like a, a pretty, a pretty catchy term, but you're right. It, it is, it is essentially a reactive term. And we're, and we're basically looking at, so for example, we look at, we have a lot of assessments um, um, that are, you know, essentially based on, um, you know, kind of, Western, because our sort of westernized, colonized kind of, you know, behavior. Um, and so we're, you know, the, the examples of sort of someone, you know, doing something is based on kind of that, 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 that kind of white Eurocentric kind of culture. And, and so the idea of sort of going back into that curriculum or into that assessment and, you know, changing the examples and, you know, having more images of folks that, you know, look like, everybody and and so on and so forth but it's, so it's a lot of sort of you know ripping out this page and taping in this page and and crossing out this assessment protocol and changing the word to this and that sort of thing um and you know and and uh we, one thing we talked about um in, in just the interview i did a couple of days ago about um um we've got this it's it's it, it's funny when you think about it now um but we've got this large sort of you know bible as you as it were in our field like the textbook that everyone's been using forever right um and 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 funny enough long before you know we were thinking about culture everyone has referred to this as the white book um and uh and it's interesting that it's really there there it really is the white book there is a lot of you know, Western Eurocentric examples and, and and so on and so forth. And, and, you know, we had a conversation about, you know, it would be awesome to have a, a multicultural book. Um, 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 uh, it, it'd probably still be, the book itself will probably still be white. But anyway, um, that, that, <laughs> that kind of approaches that because that would be that would be that culturally kind of affirming approach where from the get go, everything is embedded from you know, there's there's no sort of, OK, oh, better tweak that. Better look at it that way. Oh, don't forget that guy. Um, so I, I really I, I like I like this one. I think I will I will I will suggest others maybe use this one as well. So what is it that's going to make this framework culturally affirming? Anyone else want to take that? No, that's me. Okay. <laughs> um, I think so. Yeah, I'll say that I think the core pieces about what makes it culturally affirming is um, first, we're thinking about professional development, right? So, professional mm. development and training from the very beginning mm. that that needs to be done um, with that lens of centering the diversity that especially is represented in your building. Um, and so, is this teachers? Um, is this students? Um, 
parents, community members? What does your, your community look like as a whole? And really being intentional that the trainings that you're providing um, are, are inclusive, comprehensive of that um, environment. Uh, also the evidence-based um, practices, right? So administrators are using evidence-based practices, school counselors, school psychologists, um, but what evidence are we drawing from? What type mm. of data are we utilizing? Um, in a lot of schools, it is very much survey data. Um, and if you are thinking about Eastern cultures, collectivist cultures, um, very narrative in nature and not mm. so much um, being able to check things into a box. And so being intentional to um, kind of cast a broader net in the type of evidence that is even being collected and assessed to make decisions. Um, mm. Also the idea of community kind of collectivism, really being sure that you are leaning into parents, um, community organizers and so forth to really have a sense of what's happening in the environment around the school. Mm. Um, most teachers and administrators, school counselors perhaps even are not living in the community in which they serve. So they're making decisions without understanding the context. Um, so that's a piece as well. Um, and then there's the curriculum, right? The curriculum design um, yeah. for teachers, for school counselors, administrators, of course, right? Have a leadership role over curriculum design as well. Um, and being sure that that is also centered inclusive of the diversity that's represented in the building. But I also think, you know, representative of global, right? Because our, your students may not stay in that community and you also want them to be prepared to engage appropriately and have understandings of all cultures um, in, in the best way that they can. Um, I feel like I am forgetting one piece um, about that. I am thinking. Um, so, I like what, uh, what Ben had said. And Ben, I think you really uh, just hit the nail on the head when you were talking about, you know, the white book and, you know, it'd be nice to have like a multicultural book, but really it's about that intentionality, mm. you know, um, of, of doing this work. It's not, it's not a afterthought of, oh, you know, we have to, um, you know, we'll make sure you do this because we, we, we saw this. It's like, no, before we start, let's go ahead and have a plan in mind and how we are going to support all of our students and make mm. all of our students feel safe and as if they belong. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of people, of course, in, in our school system, um, a lot of our, our schools are actually pretty diverse in terms of the students, but in terms of the professionals in the school, it's not very diverse at all. Mm -hmm. And so um, many of them are just operating from their own personal experiences, which do not reflect the lived experiences of many of the students in their buildings. So they're not trying to be um, um, harmful. Um, however, there are just some blind spots. So let's do a lot of educating and reflection and planning on the front end um, so that we are not unintentionally hurting students. Mm -hmm. And you also mentioned like there's so many different terminologies that sort of integrates or uses the word culture. And I think they're all appropriate 
with intention. Right. Say what you mean, mean what you say. Cultural awareness is important. You have to be aware in order to be able to affirm, in order to mm -hmm. be able to respond, and then also to be able to sustain. So all of those terms are appropriate depending on what it is you're trying to do. And we, again, chose affirming because we want to, you know, really uh, emphasize strengthening and building that environment from the very beginning and mm -hmm. making sure it's ongoing and it's not an afterthought. It's not just having this knowledge, but it's really taking all of the pieces. And The third secret word is counseling. And making sure you're integrating it consistently. Mm -hmm. I love, I love that intention piece because one of the one of the other reasons I struggle with all these terms beyond there being so many of them is is that what I've noticed a lot and more so in my field is as soon as one of these terms comes into play, everyone applies it to their practice. Everyone now says, "I am culturally blah blah blah." I am, you know, um, uh, certainly. You know, in terms of, you know, I mean, we work a lot with kind of autistic folks and folks in, in kind of the world of neurodiversity. And so now I, I noticed um, the, the pandemic did, did a lot of things for to people's brains. Um, you know, uh, you know, uh, for me, uh, the, you know, the, the positive was certainly, um, you know, um, my my kind of waking up and acknowledgement of my own kind of um, biases and ignorance and so on and 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 journey kind of towards anti-racism which was great uh, but what we also saw was you know um, a big push in the neurodiversity community the whole neurodiversity movement is kind of happening now and there's you know um, some good things and some problems associated with that and and again in our field there's also this compassionate care thing is suddenly is suddenly popular and what I've been noticing I've said this in a lot of interviews uh, I've been noticing that Suddenly, in the last four years, you know, these thousands and thousands of uh, of, of ABA practitioners are all, all are all now neurodiversity affirming. They're all now compassionate. They're all now culturally competent, and so on and so forth. And I'm like, how how did you guys all do this so quickly? Like, how did you make the switch? What I, I don't see anything changing in the education programs. I don't see much changing in supervision. That paper just came out in 2020. So so how are you now all it? Um, uh, and my guess is you're not. Um, 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 and so, uh, and so I really, I, I, I just, I, 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 I cringe when I see those terms written on places. I mean, I think you need to be all those things. And, and I know my company, we're striving to be all those things, but we're certainly not slapping labels on our website to, to tell people we're this and that and the other. It's, it's similar to the, the sort of the ally sort of language, you know, um, you know, I, I, I never understand when people come out and say, I'm an ally, I'm an ally for this, I'm an ally for that, I'm an ally for you, and you're an ally for me. And, and, um, and I struggle, I struggle with it, the whole ally thing, because I, I, something that I've learned personally for me is, first off, I, you don't do it to put a name on your, on your business card, number one. And, uh, and, uh, and two, you know, it's not up to me to tell you if I'm your ally. It's up to you to tell me I'm your ally, and and uh, if you want, and if you don't, that's okay too. Um, uh, but even if you tell me, I, that still doesn't give me the right to stamp it on my business card. And so I, you know, I I, uh, I so rant over, but I, I'm glad you said sort of that intention piece. I think that's that that is what's missing from 
you know, a lot of these terms. Ben, you're definitely speaking my language. Mm -hmm. If I could have um, high-fived you through the through Zoom the whole time you talked. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so 100% agree uh, mm -hmm. with what you, what you just shared. Mm -hmm. I did also think of two additional things, the things I, I, that kind of slipped my mind earlier. One was the representation also. So representation mm -hmm. um, in the staff and the folks that are working in, your, in the school building as yeah. well. Um, we kind of talked about that earlier on, but that's a piece of model um, and also challenging bias. Um, mm. And so being really intentional about taking the time as teachers, administrators and so forth to recognize and challenge the biases that you have. Mm. Um, many people see bias as like a naughty word, right? Like to be biased is to, to be racist or to be wrong or to be bad. Um, but we all have biases. We mm. all have worldviews. We all have lived experiences that color, right? The way that we um, experience people and spaces. And so to really be aware of those, tap into those, and how is it impacting your building and your students and your mm. decision-making mm. is, um, is also a really key part. And that's that reflection piece, right, in, that the, in the framework, piece. right, you know, and I like that there's self-reflection, which I've seen a lot of, um, you know, in, in some of the conversations I had, but the group reflection stuff really is a cool idea. I like the idea of sitting with a team and and having these conversations. It's one thing for me to sit there and go, yeah, I'm biased again, and, 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 I, and, and every interview I do, I, I see my biases come out because, because you know, I, I, I used to be the same. I used to think that, you know, every, every indigenous person was the same, you know, they're, you know, every, every black person was the same and, and, and had these sort of overarching thoughts about those, those groups. Um, um, and, uh, and, you know, over time, I started to kind of, kind of recognize those biases. I think that's really important, but yeah, I think you're right. I think a lot of folks are, 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 are freaked out by, by the word bias, which I, I get being freaked out by the word racist, I guess. I'm not even freaked out by the word racist. And sometimes I maybe overuse that term a bit when I'm talking about myself, because I do kind of think I still am racist. Um, but I, I, uh, but I don't think of it as a bad word. Well, I don't, I mean, it's a bad, I don't think of it as like, you know, overtly I'm, I'm a macro aggressive kind of guy. Um, um, but I'm definitely, I definitely would, I, I think I'd probably engage in microaggressions all the time because I just have no idea I'm doing it. Um, um, until I learn what they are and learn about you know those effects. I would have been, I you know, I never really had the opportunity, but I'm sure I would have been the guy to want to touch someone's hair, you know, or or ask questions about it, or or I, I definitely would have been the guy that said, you know, where are you really from? You know, I, I would have asked all those questions. Um, I never really was exposed to black folks in my entire life. Um, and so um, I guess lucky for me in that way, because I didn't ask those questions. I didn't have to put anybody through that experience. Um, uh, but I, I'm, I, you know, I, I'm thankful that I, that I, that I didn't make those choices back then, but yeah, I, I think, I mean, for me, reflection is just, is just such a huge part of my life now. And, and uh, I'll reflect after this, after this interview and go, Hmm, what did I say? What did I do? Um, what assumptions did I make? Why were they looking at me that way? Because <laughs> it's their camera. It's it nothing to do with me. Uh, but uh, you know, uh, uh, sometimes I have to, you know, look at look at look at my biases that are are positive, the positive ones too, right? You know, and, and realize that there's some things there. There could be some good things happening that I don't give myself credit for. Um, I, I was wondering about. Um, I, I had one more kind of question really oh yeah just about the whole framework itself so have you have you 
actually put this into practice or is this sort of theoretical right now and you kind of want to get together with more folks and make it happen? Like, have you seen it in action? I think we've, we've, we have probably individually done individual pieces mm. um, just throughout our practices. Um, and so some of it came from um, just our own experiences of, you know, what we found has worked in the field or maybe even knowing that this, we didn't do this in the field, but we probably mm. should have now mm. that we are more seasoned mm. <laughs> and a little more educated and have more knowledge. Um, but also a lot of it came from um, just reading the research that's out there. Um, and so as a whole, we would like to um, actually put this into practice and, and try this out in the field. And like Sarah said, see what works, see what doesn't mm. work. Um, because it is a, essentially it's a, it's a theory right now. Yeah. We tried some individual pieces, but you know, collectively, we would love to look at, you know, what does this look like all together? Mm, mm, mm. Cool, cool. All right. So, I mean, I, I mean, this, I mean, this just came out, you know, last year and, and it's sort of step one. And so it, 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 it's, it's not, it's certainly not a criticism that you haven't done all this work yet. Um, but I was just sort of curious because there, there was a vignette in there, but that was just sort of maybe a, a sort of a a story you kind of created an example of what it could look like sort of thing, I suppose. Um, so, you know, the sister scholars have only been together for a couple of years. So what, what else is going on? What, what, what's, what's, what's on the horizon for, for, for the three of you? Sarah, you want to take that? Take that. Um, well, I'll start by saying, you know, I think we've published, presented like over 18, um, publications, presentations, and so forth. Wow. Um, so we are, feel like we're constant, where if we're, we're writing, we're editing, we're mm. brainstorming, it's like a constant um, rotation. Yeah. So we always have something kind of moving forward. Um, so some of the things that we're working on now is what we just mentioned. So we are um, actually working to put all of that together, find some schools where we can implement um, and get that off the ground. Um, we've also noticed that there's um, some um, I guess we can save some nuanced situations that are arising in our field specific to what we would call job embedded um, school counselors um, and uh, school-based mental health professionals mm -hmm. that are providing clinical mental health services in the school. Our job embedded folks are people who um, are still in our program, but there's such a shortage of school counselors mm -hmm. uh, that they're getting jobs before they finish our program and is presenting some unique challenges mm. for counselor educators, unique opportunities yeah. for them. Um, and so we are doing some um, some research and some exploration um, in both of those areas. Um, right now, I think those would be kind of like our three big um, things of, of coming towards the end of 2023 that we're uh, working on. Um, and then, you know, individually, we also collaborate with people outside of Sister Scholars um, and so there's separate projects that we also have going on. Um, I'll just speak for me. I still have not published my dissertation work. Um, and so that is something I am aiming to do within the next year. Um, and what was that? Work? And that was looking at black, uh, black student identity development mm. and experiences with racism in K-12 mm. schools. Okay. Wow. Um, so it's a qualitative study. Um, mm. so I'm actually looking to duplicate it to do it again um, to have a larger data set and then um, and then publish. So that's something I'm aiming for, awesome. for individually. Yeah. Yeah. What y'all want to share? What y'all are? 
working on? Oh, I, I'm probably doing too much, but you know, I can't say no. Um, I, have, <laughs> I have three projects that I'm on with three different, you know, sets of colleagues um, that I've been invited to participate on. Two of them is focusing on school counselor uh, supervision, how mm. we are providing practitioners, you know, supervision and support. So those are focused on that. And then one is dealing with um, infant mental health. It's actually mm. with a student that is interested in this. And so I'm just kind of mentoring her and helping her get, get walled up with a lot of, another colleague of mine. We are mentoring her and helping her get this project off the ground. So infant mental health is not my area, but you know, I, I am more, I guess, for the structure and helping with the writing process. So I'm excited about that. I think it's a great topic. I think it's a needed area and she's very passionate about it. And I believe in supporting students and mentorship. Mm. And so I'm doing just that, you know. What 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 what's her name, if you don't mind, Sherry? I've never heard of infant mental health. So that she might be someone I want to reach out to. Um can I say it? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you can share it, share it with me after. Or, All right, or talk about it after. I, I've never heard of infant mental health before. Yeah. I didn't even, I, it, it makes sense that it would be, but I, I you know, anyway. I had to, I, I'm caught in the ethical conundrum. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair, fair, fair. Yeah, yeah. No, no, good job. Good job. Resist, resist. No, but it, yeah, it, it, maybe reach out to her and see if she'd be yeah, willing to connect with me. I would. That'd be I awesome. Will, yeah. yeah. And I'm um actually I I got a couple of projects. One I am I'm I'm finishing up. It's actually on um it's called the beloved community, but it's the uh, experience of um black faculty members at a PWI and how we can support mm. one another um throughout that process. And so we've actually the last few years we've done a writing retreat every year. And so now we're kind of talking about um, number one, that writing retreat and number and number two, like support and what that could look like. Um, and uh, so we just uh, are we're just finishing up a publication that we plan on submitting at the end of um, um, end of this week or next week. Um, Mariama and I, we actually are working on a publication with a um uh, school counselor and a um, a former student. Now he's in his doc program, but we actually did a collaborative group together. Well, me and the school counselor, we did a collaborative group for um, black male students at her school. Mm -hmm. um, and we uh, brought in some black male mentors. She's a white woman. Um, mm -hmm. I'm a black woman, but the group was for black male students. So we brought in some black male mentors from the community uh, we did a six-week group. We collected some data on that. Um, we really tried to approach it from a strength-based approach uh, while also um, addressing their needs um, because these were students who um, had some disciplinary issues um, and or academic issues. Mm. Um, so we we did that together. Um, now we are writing that up um, and hope to... Um, uh, submit that um, soon as well. And um, actually in October, we will all be together at another conference, our mm. council educator conference. And so we'll be presenting at that conference together in October, the three of us. Oh, fantastic. Good. That's so awesome. Well, I'd love to have some of you or all of you back sometime. I mean, this whole, we, I didn't even, we didn't even sort of touch on all the work you were doing sort of with black males in school settings, as well as black males you know, in, in, uh, you know, as school counselors. And uh, I've had a lot of conversations around sort of black men in, in, in um, 
in behavior analysis. And, uh, you know, I think there's, um, and, and just all the kind of interesting sort of facets around that. And, and, uh, you know, I just sort of see a lot of, a lot of the conversations around sort of, you know, uh, uh, retention and just getting more, you know, kind of black men into these fields, um, really goes back to your work from kindergarten on with these, with, with these black boys and getting them, getting them ready, getting them feeling supported, getting them feeling like they're, they've got value, you know, right from the beginning so they can kind of, kind of work towards these things. Um, so I, I love that, that, that you folks exist. Um, and, and that this work is being done. And I'm, I'm just so uh, uh, grateful that I was able to learn all about counseling from you three and grateful that you were able to come on the podcast. Thank you for inviting us. Yeah, that was it's awesome. Been, it's been great, Ben. Thank you. Cool. All right. Right on.